0: morning, church, fam. I'm really proud of you for uh, engaging in that practice today. I think that oftentimes it's, number one, really hard to sit still, to be quiet, to reflect. Um, and you jumped in, and I'm proud of you for that. Um, did Anybody feel like their mind was wandering? Anybody? Just be honest. Isn't that wild? Isn't that wild how when we get into a space like that, there's times where we just, we get off track. But thank you, Joanne, for guiding us. Um, And I think that what I want to encourage you with is that there's more on offer for you when it comes to practice when it comes to trying and being courageous and jumping into new things. And our gatherings here on Sunday aren't about you watching some professionals do things. Our gatherings on Sunday mornings are about participating together, encouraging each other, and um, continuing this journey of what it looks like to follow the way of Jesus. And so, that's what we're about. Uh, You guys look a little tired. I'm just going to be honest. Are you guys tired? I mean, we have pumped out a bunch of coffee um, in the back. So there's no use really. But you guys all look tired. Like, like life is happening in your world to a degree that's causing you sleepiness. I'm glad you're all drinking your coffee right now. We have a few things to do together. We're in the letter to the Romans. Romans. And we have been going backwards in the letter. And if you're just joining us, I want to encourage you, if you feel like it, to go back three weeks as our beginning started three weeks ago. And we are kind of working our way backwards. And the reason why we're working our way backwards is because we're trying to find out why Paul wrote the letter, who he wrote the letter to. And what was going on in their life. And we found out some very interesting things. We read a long, boring list of names. And uh, that was, I think, a really important moment for us as a a community because we learned about people, like actual people that were part of these actual house churches. We learned that there were five house churches. We learned that uh, somebody named Phoebe traveled all the way from near Corinth, Centrea, all the way to Rome to not just deliver the letter, but to actually read it, perform it, and interpret it to the people of Rome. And that's pretty powerful. We also read, last week, uh, Terry walked us through chapters 14 and 15 that had this idea about the weak and the strong and, and how there was two different factions within the church. The letter to the Romans, just, to, just so we're clear, just, so we're, just backing up a bit, the letter to the Romans was not intended to be read 2,000 years later by individuals wondering how to make sure they were going to heaven when they died. That was not Paul's intent on writing the letter. It just so happens that now we have the letter. And we have to uh, we read the letter and what it means for us today. So we're going to dip into chapter 12 And next week, we're going to dip into chapter 13. But chapter 12, now, here's the thing about this one. I preached or taught a teaching last fall on the whole part of chapter 12, okay? So I'm not going to rehash that. So I'd encourage you, if you want to go back, you can check it out. It's like in October somewhere. Today, I'm just going to kind of camp out in the first two verses. And they're very famous verses. They're famous famous verses of Paul. And we're going to start in verse 1 of chapter 12. It goes like this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, stop right there. Brothers and sisters has been the language we've been using, this idea of family, right? And this is Paul. one of Paul's main metaphors for the church, for the little group in, in Rome. He says, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. We're going to talk about bodies and we're going to talk about sacrifice. Let's start with bodies. Paul is not saying offer your mind to God. Paul's not saying offer your intellect uh, or your will or your behavior. He's saying offer your bodies. Now, you are a whole self, head to toe, mind, will, emotion, physicality. That's what Paul is asking. Paul is asking us to offer our whole self. Somehow, this is a Dallas Willard. He wrote this in the Spirit of Disciplines. He said this, somehow we've gotten the idea that the essence of faith is entirely a mental and inward thing. And I don't know if you've grown up with that kind of idea. That we've talked about all the time, like in your church growing up, is like it's about what you believe, right? About what you believe mentally. I think Paul is getting at something bigger here. I think he's trying to get them to awaken to the idea that their whole being is important to God, that our whole bodies are important. And this is why we talk about, like Mandy shared earlier, this idea of practice. Uh, Practice is taking learned ideas and putting them to work, putting them to practice. You just practiced together something that you probably or may not have decided to do on your own. We practiced with our bodies being still, being quiet. You practiced with your mind reflecting, giving space, thinking, imagining. You just offered your body to God in a moment of prayer, contemplation, slowing, and listening. You just did that. What Paul is talking about here is offering our whole selves. Now, let's get into the word sacrifice. The sacrifice Paul has in mind for the Roman followers of Jesus is radically new. Instead of offering animals and grain to the gods in the local shrines, remember, all of Roman life was built around worship. So, if you wanted to make a trip by, by sea, you would offer a sacrifice to the god of the sea. If you wanted to have a family, you would offer a sacrifice to Epaphrodites. If your child was sick, you would offer a sacrifice. If you, if you wanted to do a business deal, you would offer a sacrifice. Your whole life revolved around sacrifice. If you were a Roman, if you were Jewish, you knew what sacrifice was too, right? Last week we talked about the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians, and they both had a concept of sacrifice. And so Paul is just expanding their idea of sacrifice and saying that this sacrifice that I'm asking you to offer your bodies as is an embodied way of life offered to the invisible but ever present God. So, what Paul's saying is what we do is our sacrifice. I'm going to say that again. What we do is our sacrifice. When we speak, when we listen, when we embrace, when we eat, when we drink, when we love, when we guide our children, when we offer wisdom, when we work, when we pay our taxes, when we offer visible expressions of care, when we respect or approve and disapprove, when we pray, when we participate in fellowship, when we worship, when we, when we listen to instruction, this is all part of sacrifice an embodied life, our whole selves, right? Scott McKnight, um, who's, work we're kind of following a little bit in this conversation around Romans. He says this, unlike moderns, that's us, who use the term worship only for the singing portions of Sunday services, their embodied daily life is their worship. Once again, Paul is replacing ordinary Roman acts of sacrifice in their home or on their public altars with their embodied Christiformity. And we're going to talk about those two words, embodied and Christiformity, really quick here. That word, I mean, that's what we see is this idea that you and I gather on Sunday morning, and we use this phrase a lot, to reorder our loves and our longings. That you and I, during the week, we are easily pulled into different loves and longings. And what we try to do as we gather on Sundays together is to reorder that. And some of this has to do with this visible and, and tangible part of us, that our human body, we have a lived theology, meaning We don't just walk around with ideas in our head and just carry on with actions like they don't matter. What Paul is saying is like our whole life matters, and it's embodied in who we are as followers of Jesus. And when he goes on to say, "It's it's, this is a holy and pleasing to God activity. This is your true and proper worship." That's temple language. That's something the Jewish Christians would understand. That's that's temple worship. And then in verse two, he says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is a whole new kind of neurovision for reality. Paul is saying, retrain your brain. Learning that practice, here's what we're learning that practice retrains our brains. And so Paul's basically saying, I want you to rethink all you think that matters. And that's this idea of Christiformity. Or I would say, Christ formed. That maturity is something we've been talking about in the life of our church that our vision for each other is that we would present each other mature, that like that's part of who we are and that's really what Christiformity is, the process of being formed in Christ. So I just wanna pause here for a second because we just covered two verses and like I said, I taught on this a number of weeks ago, months ago and we went through it. It was a kind of a community teaching. Um, I don't know if you remember the conversation we had around a guy named Count Zinzendorf in the Moravians. I don't know if you guys remember that. And it was the day we had our chili cook-off, and we joked about naming the trophy for the chili cook-off Count Zinzendorf, but we didn't. And and then I lost chili cook-off to my mom. I don't know if you guys remember but I'm hopefully bringing this back to you because it's still... Still real deep uh, and painful for me. Um, she's not here so I can say that. Um, but here's what we talked about that day. just a real quick recap. We talked about Paul saying that we're a body, we all have a part to play. Starting in verse nine of this passage, there's 25 commands, 25 commands of how we. Play a part together. Some of them are be devoted to each other, show honor to each other, practice hospitality, live in harmony, do not be proud. And we finished with this crazy passage about heaping burning coals on other people. Do you guys remember this? And it's kind of a strange passage, but it all has to do, you can go back and listen, it all has to do with purifying and cleansing. It's very temple language. But I want to zoom out a bit as we finish this up today. A little shorter teaching today. According to Paul's conception of reality, I want you to hang with me here. You're going to have to use your imagination a little bit. All the churches he writes to, not just Rome, but all the church, churches Paul writes to are set within a cosmically contested situation. In Paul's mind, there's more wrong with the world and with all of reality than the mere fact that humans are sinners. There's a lot more wrong. And Paul uses these two kind of big kind of categories. He says this present evil age is the age we live in. And he contrasts that with the age to come. The present evil age and the age to come. Now, according to Paul's inherited worldview, his Jewish worldview stemming from the scriptures of israel all of reality is far more jacked up than most modern christians realize that there's more happening than just bad stuff on the news okay in paul's worldview now this may not be yours um or it may not be a worldview that you've thought about lately because we're moderns and we have a way of uh, kind of tucking our head into the sand a bit. In Paul's worldview, there is God, God's archenemy, Satan, who is at work in the world. In Paul's worldview, there are cosmic ruler figures. He calls powers and authorities who sow within all human cultures kind of a perverted ideology, enslaving ways of life. And then Paul personifies sin, death, and the flesh. These are all words he uses kind of interchangeably as, in a sense, personified cosmic actors that have wills and intentions Okay. And all of these figures make up what I I've read called the apocalyptic power alliance. Now you guys that sounds very Marvel comic. I get that. But just play around with this imagery in your head. I know it sounds really dramatic. But I find it a really helpful way of describing all the forces in a sense unseen, that have an effect and and imprint our world and how we experience life. But here's the thing. Paul sees the death of Christ as a triumph over all of that. This is Paul's worldview. And in Paul's mind... And God has created, because of the death of Christ and the resurrection of Jesus, Paul has created little domes of flourishing life in the midst of this corrupt reality. And he calls this in Christ. Now, I don't know if you remember, at the beginning of our, our series, we talked about this chapter at the end, chapter 16, where we learned so much about this church, about Paul, why Paul wrote the letter. And 11 times in 16 verses, Paul uses the phrase in Christ, of Christ, or in the Lord. But what is in Christ? What is that? Well, let's talk about it. In Christ, for Paul, is God has broken the enslaving grip of this apocalyptic power alliance we talked about, over creation, and has begun to free the world from this influence and at one point in, this, in the future, there, there will be a day that God will complete the work and fully restore creation, but the church is the initial phase of that work. The in Christ group of people, that's us, we're at the initial phase of it. Now, in Christ is not an individual little capsule for each of you, okay? We usually hear the word in Christ as as for, for an individual. You're in Christ. Oh, I'm in Christ, yeah. Oh, thank you, thank you, I'm in Christ. And it's like this little capsule. It is this reality we live in Um, but it's actually a reality that we live into together. We are together in Christ. The church for Paul is the presence of God in Christ by the Spirit. And this is huge. This This is really important for Paul. These communities, these little domes of in Christ, just using your imagination here, these communities are outbreaks of the future. The kingdom of God, sites of resurrection life on earth, enlivened and animated by the spirit of God, the life-giving presence of God. Paul says that this, that our church is an outpost of the kingdom of God, that this is in Christ. But this exists in hostile territory. And Paul's appeal to the Roman house churches is to not track stuff in. Okay? Anybody make people take shoes off at your house? Like, oh, come on, admit it. I know... Yeah, anybody else? Nobody else does? Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's kind of a, it's okay, you're clean. You don't want people tracking stuff in. What Paul is talking about is that the Roman house churches are living in the midst of a very empire way of life. And he's encouraging them to not conform to that but to be transformed by the renewing of their minds. That there's a different reality on offer for them and it's in Christ. And he's encouraging them to not track in that stuff into this reality. What were the Roman house churches tracking in? They were tracking in power, power dynamics, they were tracking in status. They were tracking in patron-client dynamics, and we talked about this briefly. But if you were wealthy or you had some status in Roman culture, you were a patron, and you would form underneath you, kind of like a, um, kind of like a multi-level marketing scheme, if you will. Um, we won't get into those, but. Um, you would, you, would, you would create a base of clients underneath you. And what you would do is you would arbitrate things on their behalf and they would, they would show fidelity to you. And this was all of Roman society. This is how the whole game worked. And Paul said, don't track that in. Don't track that in. Honor each other. And then there was division, and we talked about the division last week. But here's the big question for us What do we track in? What do we track in? How are we tracking stuff in? Right, Amari? Yeah. <laughs> Let's start by doing one thing. Let's start by admitting, let's just be totally honest today. Let's start by admitting that the church in the West tends to be really good at helping people cope with modern life, but not undoing the disorder of modern life. We don't do a good job at... unraveling all the things that form us. We usually do a good job at just helping each other just get through it. We, if we're honest, we feel the tug of being in the midst of this cosmic mess, this situation, the present age and the age to come. We taste the kingdom sometimes, right? You taste it. You taste things that happen how they're supposed to. You taste people caring for each other in in very selfless ways. We taste the kingdom at times, but so much of it is we, we track in stuff that's not the kingdom. Here's one of the ways that we can be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Our context of the many ideas that inspired the and shaped America. Uh, One of those is individualism and a commitment to individual rights. Okay? And that's like baked into us. (laughs) Really baked into us. And I don't care what political party you affiliate with, it is baked into you. It's baked into me. And we emphasize this all the time. It's in our commercials. It's in everything. It's in how messages hit us. And from the very beginning, I mean, this isn't uh, an opinion. (laughs) Uh, this This is history. From the very beginning, individualism embedded itself within American communication, history, and culture. So much so that individualism introduced and maintained this idea that independence, privacy, and competition were virtues in our world. It's just, it's all around us. We have been trained to view one another okay, as competitive threats who will keep us from meeting our own needs and wants. That's just all around us. Here's how one historian writes it. The embeddedment of individualism in American socialization and culture has continuously operated as a mode to encourage competition, self-reliance, and personal achievement. And here's the thing, guys. You and I track that in. We track that into our community. We track that into our relationships. We track that in here. What is here? Well, it's a family. It's brothers and sisters. It's in Christ. We track that in. And of all the places where in Christ is used in scripture, 100% of them mean plural. In Christ. It's not individual, it's plural. I'm not in Christ by myself, I am in Christ with you. And this cosmic scenario informs much of Paul's counsels to his churches, And it shapes how he discerns community conflicts, okay? It shapes how he, this is why he wrote this letter. He wrote this letter to a group of people that were beginning to fracture. Not because he wanted them to have a Romans road version of theology. He wrote it to them because they were fracturing. And we track stuff in. Here's the thing, here's stuff we track in as we close. We track in our personal wounding from our lives. We bring that with us. That's, that's a suitcase. <laughs> we bring in another suitcase of our fears, that idea of competition and people are going to hurt us. We bring in our opinions. We bring in our biases. We bring in our preferences. We bring all that. We track it in. And then that creates factions division and hierarchy and cutoff and distrust and dishonor might even create some power dynamics and guess what that is that's just like everywhere else that's just like everywhere else that's just like where you work that's just like your neighborhood that's just like everywhere else and Paul's saying we're not everywhere else now, I'm, I'm playing around in my own personal life of imagining in Christ as an actual location, as an actual physical place that we dwell together. Galatians 3, Paul talks about this single place in which believers exist, their singular identity in Christ despite gender, ethnicity, or social status. that that there's this place that that we exist in with that. And in the immediate context of Romans 12, Paul insinuates from the imagery of the body of Christ the notion that we have responsibility to and for each other, kind of like a family. And we actually have responsibility for each other, so much so that being members, listen to this real carefully because this is hard for me to grasp, but I'm going to say it anyway, being members of one another means that there is a relationship from which there is no exit plan. We, there's no exit plan for us. Paul wrote this letter to the Romans. Remember, we talked about five house churches. A million people in a very small amount of space, and there's five tiny little house churches in there. And if, if they had issues, it's not like they could go to the church of followers of Jesus down the street. There was nowhere else to go. That was it. We have lots of options, but they didn't. I kind of wish we were like, Because what Paul's saying is, there's no exit plan when you're brothers and sisters. There's no exit plan when you're in Christ, and having been brought together as a family, we don't have an option of walking away from one another. And this is the fundamental lie of modernity: is this idea that we are our own? Okay, that you are your own, that we don't have impact on others, that we don't belong to others. A guy named Alan Noble wrote a book called You Are Not Your Own. And he wrote this. Almost everyone else you meet will continue to believe that they are their own, and so are you. Almost every institution will treat you like an autonomous individual, subject to instrument- instrumentalization and valued according to efficiency. So our challenge is really great. It's really great. It's really hard. The notion that you and I have responsibilities to and for one another is actually in open conflict with the world we live in. Because the world we live in says if someone doesn't say what you want them to say or believe in you the way you want them to believe in you, and walk away. We're tasked with presenting each other mature in Christ. And so here's some of the questions we're going to begin to ask ourselves in some of our house church communities this week. How natural is it to drag in the patterns of this world into our in Christ family? What patterns have you seen brought into the family of God? How can we honor each other more? How can we go out of our way to be a culture of honor? And then this is the last one. This is something that maybe some of you could consider. It's like, what gifts do you see a need for in our church today? What gifts? What do we need? How can we do this together better? So I'm going to pray, and we're going to just settle with that a little bit. Father, thank you for this this letter that it's easy to misunderstand. God, show us what it looks like to live a kind of relationship with each other where there is no exit plan. Where our goal is to be devoted to each other and honor each other show hospitality, and set aside our, our pride and our status and our need to be a community that pursues each other. That the watching world would look in and say, that is a different thing over there. That is a different way of relationship over there. That looks like something otherworldly. God, we realize today that it is. It's something you brought to us in the life, teachings, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Something that changed the arc of humanity. that the kingdom of God is here and we're meant to participate in it together. Despite our backgrounds and our wounds, despite our opinions and our histories, that you're commanding us to live this way. God, show us how to take that seriously together. We pray that in your name. Amen.